Well, good morning. Welcome. If I don't know you, uh, my name is Andrew. I'm the campus pastor here at the Leewood campus of Christ Community. And uh, I wanted to ask just a straw poll. Did you guys end up watching the Super Bowl last Sunday or most of you? Yes. Yeah, one of you did. Uh, <laughs> okay, good. So was I the only one who had a hard time watching at a, a former assistant coach of the Chiefs? And a former backup quarterback of the Chiefs beat the Patriots. Was I the only one that was just kind of like, man, that hurts a little bit. I was happy for them, but it hurt a little bit. Though in a sense, it means that we kind of won too, right? I mean, it means we won the Super Bowl. We played a part in that. So photo credit here goes to Randy Bonifield. Uh, he's a great follow on Facebook. Yeah, what a, what a guy, what a guy. So really, how... <laughs> How did Nick Foles do it? He's the, he's the quarterback for the Eagles. How did he win this game? And if you don't know his background at all, you know, how, how did a journeyman quarterback, he kind of bounced around the league, uh, who was considering retiring until Andy Reid talked him into coming to play for, for Kansas City two years ago. He had not played a meaningful game uh, until week 15 of this year. He'd never won an NFL playoff game ever. How did that guy go to, into the Super Bowl and slay the two-headed monster that is Tom Brady and Bill Belichick? How, how did he do it? That's amazing. And, you know, there are times uh, when people do things we can't explain, when, when they change and they become totally different from whom we knew them to be before. And I think Nick Foles, he had one of those moments. And our sermon today, honestly, is about one of those moments. Uh, when you, it's a moment where you think you know somebody, you, you, you think you get them and you, what they're capable of, what they do, and then, and then they totally surprise you. They knock your socks off. It's a moment like that for the Apostle Peter. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you know we've been in the book of Acts, uh, really talking about the birth of the church. That's what the, the book of Acts is all about. Uh, and it's really kind of, here are the events that happened, you know, after Jesus. That's what we've been talking about. And before this moment in Acts chapter 2 that I'm gonna, we're going to get to in just, in just a second, uh, you, you've really gotten a good sense of who Peter is, especially if you've read uh, Luke's first book. Uh, it's the Gospel Luke. He wrote two, Luke and Acts. He wrote them kind of as a two-volume story. If you've read that at all, you, you've got a good idea of who Peter is. Let me just recap for you a little bit of who he is if, you, if you're not familiar. He, uh, Peter was a nobody Galilean fisherman. He, uh, was a, he was a fisherman like his dad and his dad and his dad and his dad. He was not, as far as we know, highly educated. Uh, he was not particularly wealthy or well-connected. And, and during his, his uh, years of travel with Jesus and Jesus' ministry, uh, if you follow closely, you'll notice he often speaks out of turn and ends up with his foot in his mouth. He consistently overestimates himself and ends up looking foolish. One story there, right? He tried, if you know, he tries to walk on water to Jesus and he, and he fails. It's kind of par for the course for Peter. His highest moment as a disciple, and it's, it is a true high moment. He is the first to, to look at Jesus and say, I think you're the Christ, son of the most high God. That's good. Uh, he immediately, however, takes Jesus aside after that moment and says, now, by the way, Jesus, you're talking about the cross and dying. Messiahs don't die, Jesus. And Jesus says, um, you're a weapon of Satan right now. That's not a high. So right after his high water, he comes right. Not good. And in the end, uh, he abandoned Jesus alongside of the rest of the disciples. Uh, but more than that, he, he, he verbally denied Christ three times when it mattered most. 
And actually, if you, uh, the way the story goes, especially in the Gospel of Luke, that's really the last thing you see Peter do, is deny Christ. Uh, he's, never really, he's not highlighted really again until the book of Acts. So that's kind of the last impression you get of him. There's this moment of fear and failure and doubt uh, and guilt. And uh, you, you kind of think, you know, at the end of all that, you kind of think, okay, Peter's not a bad guy. He's a deeply flawed person, uh, but he's genuine. And he's, he's a decent backup to have around in case of emergency. But he's not a starter. <laughs> he's not the leader of the early church. He's not the guy who stands up in Acts 2 and delivers the first sermon of the church ever in history. He's not the first to, uh, preacher to add 3,000 people to the Jesus movement. Okay, P- Peter, in this moment we're about to consider together, he becomes the first megachurch pastor ever. Not him. What happened? What changed? Well, I think he finally got the message. That's our title today, is our message. He got the message. He got the message that Jesus was trying to teach him over and over and over and over again when they worked together. The message that was entrusted to the church and is still entrusted to the church for thousands of years up until right now, it clicked for Peter. He got it. And that was the most transformative moment of his entire life. It it changed his character, his leadership, his influence, his courage, everything. A switch flipped. He said, oh, okay, here is what Christianity is. Now I get it. I understand it now. This, This is our message that we share. And then he stands up and he tells everyone and anyone who will listen this message that he's learned. So this morning, uh, he's going to tell us. That's what we're going to do. And if we can get it, if we can grasp this, we, we, we too can be changed. We can be transformed. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read Peter's sermon. It's not too long. And then we'll, I'll kind of explain it a little bit. And then we'll just apply it. That's what we're going to do today. Okay. So if you have your Bible with you, turn to Acts 2. Peter's sermon starts in verse 14. Uh, while you're turning there, let me just orient you a little bit if you weren't here the last two weeks. So we started Acts chapter 1. Jesus, before he leaves to, to, to sit at the right hand of the Father, he ascends to heaven. He tells the church, wait. I will send power from on high in the Holy Spirit. Wait. And, and we talked about the beauty of the church's dependence on, the super, on God's supernatural power. And then at the beginning of Acts chapter 2, we talked about when Jesus' words are fulfilled and the Holy Spirit comes and fills the the apostles, the disciples, and they begin speaking in human languages that they didn't previously know, talking to the Jewish faithful in Jerusalem in their own native tongue. We talked about the the beauty of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And uh, so that's kind of the moment. I want to get us back into that moment we were last week before I read this sermon. It doesn't make sense without it, okay? So imagine with me, just, just close your eyes, imagine with me for a minute, you're a Jewish pilgrim Come to Jerusalem for Pentecost, for, and you're from Egypt. Okay, your family's lived in, you're Jewish, uh, by, you know, your family's Jewish, but you lived in Egypt for several generations now uh, as, a, as a foreigner there. Your native tongue is Egyptian. That's what you grew up speaking. But you're a Jew. So when you visit Jerusalem, you're, you know, and there's thousands of people in Jerusalem at this time who are not from there because it's a, it's a big festival that everybody comes when you're there, you're used to speaking in Greek or Aramaic or kind of other universal languages, but those are second, third languages for you. Those are, you pick those up along the way. That's not your native tongue. And then suddenly, uh, three people, you know, come up to you and they start talking to you about this guy, Jesus, in your own language, perfectly, flawlessly. 
And I'm trying to imagine how jarring that would be. It'd be like walking around in mainland China as a Westerner. And you're in a village, and they're, they're all speaking Mandarin, and then all of a sudden the whole village starts speaking English perfectly to you. Like, how eerie and creepy would that be? You would, that would, you'd be taken aback. You would have no explanation for why that happened, right? So um, they, they start speaking Egyptian to you, and your friend leans over, and he says, they're just drunk. And you're like, I've heard drunk people before. <laughs> they don't start speaking Egyptian perfectly. They actually do the opposite of that. And then suddenly in the middle of all this, this guy stands up. He appears to be the leader. And someone, someone, you hear his name. Someone says Peter. They know who he is. And he, and he says this. So if you would stand for the reading of God's word, I'm going to read this sermon to us. Here's what he says. Hear the word of the Lord. First sermon of the church. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, and the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did in your midst, as you yourselves know, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades." Or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So first sermon ever, what do you guys think? Any clue what he's talking about? (laughs) Different audience, right? Different context. And there's way too much here to possibly cover, I, I promise you that. But I wanted to just real quickly notice a few things Peter does in this first sermon that we need to pay attention to too. So the first thing Peter does, 
Uh, and really the big idea of his whole sermon is this. He says, I'm going to convince you that Jesus is exactly who he said he was. That's the big idea of his sermon. Okay, Peter does not start his sermon uh, or build his sermon around what we might call today a felt need. You ever heard that phrase before? Uh, he does not uh, aim his sermon really at the emotions at first, but at the mind. He's, he's reasoning. You know, in, in other words, Peter doesn't say, men of Judea, are you downcast today? Are you feeling low today? Are you confused? I have, your, you know, I have the word that will give you your best life now if you listen, if you listen to me now. It's a cheap shot. I know, it's a cheap shot. I'm sorry. So, it was. Um, he, makes, he doesn't do that. He makes a reasoned, logical case that Jesus is who he said he was. And he does that a couple of ways. First, he shows uh, that the entire Bible points to Jesus. It's hard to miss that. The entire Bible points to him. And I can't get it, go into all the details of how Peter's using the Old Testament here in, in each case, but notice how much Bible he covers in just those few verses. He goes from Joel 2, the promise of the Spirit, to Psalm 16, to Psalm 110. He makes an allusion to Psalm 132, saying over and over and over again, Jesus of Nazareth is in every part of our scriptures. Look with me, is what he's saying. And everyone listening, remember, remember was a Jewish pilgrim. So these passages that, that, that he's quoting, sometimes we miss this. Uh, these are what they grew up listening to. You know, we didn't, a lot of us didn't do, we didn't do that. These weren't our stories. But if you were a Jewish kid in the first century, these are your stories. This is, this is what your bedtime story was. You know, they were, it was about King David and Moses and the promises of God all over the Bible. This is what grandpa said to you over the campfire when you, when you were camping with him. This is um, the songs your, your mother sang to you when you were going to bed at night. These were the characters you pretended to be with your neighborhood friends. Okay? These, these were more than just authoritative documents for these people. They were, like, they were that, but they were also kind of like their Harry Potters and their Star Wars and their, right? the things that they would get lost in. And Peter is, is drawing all of that out and he's saying, in Jesus, all these stories come true. Everything you've ever been told, everything you've ever longed for, it comes true in him. Even the scriptures, he's saying, affirm who Jesus is. He's the one who sent the Spirit that you're now witnessing in your midst. He, he's the one that David called my Lord. Who's David talking about? He's about my Lord. He's talking about Jesus. He's the, the promised son of David who reigns forever on the throne. Everything you've been waiting for, longing for, expecting comes true in him. And Peter began to change when he began to understand that the plan of God was made perfect in Jesus. And he is telling anyone who listened to him to do the same. He says, put the pieces together. He says, think about it. What other explanation is there for who this person was? He is exactly who he said he was. And then right when he gets them nodding, okay, this is just my imagination. But I'm a, I think at this point, people are listening and they're kind of going, okay, hadn't hadn't thought about that, hadn't made those connections. That's interesting. Okay, uh, I want to hear more. Right when he gets them in that moment where they're starting to come with him, he, he makes the turn. And every good sermon, you guys, pay attention, every good sermon has a turn. Um, you bait the hook, you get people happy, and then you, you pull hard. <laughs> and you, that's what you do. It's, it's exactly like that. Okay, here's, <laughs> here's Peter's turn. 
He says, in Jesus, right, here's the good news. In Jesus, all the promises of God have come true. He's the chosen one. He's the Messiah. He's exactly who he said he was. And you, and you, and you, and you killed him. You see it? You killed him. Each and every one of you. Now, interestingly, I doubt that the people hearing Peter say this were, were the same people shouting, crucify him, crucify him, 50 days earlier during the Passover. A lot of people make that connection. I doubt it's the same people, and I want you to hang on to that thought, okay? I don't think they were physically present for that. Probably not, certainly not all of them. Hold that thought. Peter is saying, uh, your mind should tell you, as, I'm re- as I reason with you, that Jesus is who he said he was. And his resurrection proves that he is who he said he was, which means that you killed God's plan. You are Voldemort. You're Darth Vader. You are the bad guy in this story. Jesus is who he said he was, and you tried to stop him and God from fulfilling his plan, but he did not let you. He raised Jesus from the dead. This Jesus God raised up And of that we are witnesses, says Peter. That's verse 32. And this is Peter's trump card, and you will see it again and again and again in the New Testament. Anyone who talks about Jesus or claims that Jesus is God, that he's the Son of God, makes any claim about Jesus, will say, and we know it because we saw him alive. We didn't dream him alive. We didn't anticipate. We didn't predict. We saw him with our eyes. This is Peter's trump card. And, And to say that, in Jerusalem at this time to say he raised him up. Uh, Peter is begging, he is daring anyone listening to him to go check the tomb. It's right there. It's in town. Peter's saying, you don't believe me, go check that tomb. You know it's empty and so do I. Now, notice this too, in the, in, in, I'm just gonna, this is a little diatribe. At the end of the book of Matthew, uh, when uh, by the time he writes his gospel, he, he addresses a major uh, argument against the Christian faith in, in, at the end of his book, if you pay attention. He says that the religious leaders, upon finding out that the tomb was empty, tell the soldiers, go tell everyone what? That the disciples stole the body. Go tell everybody that. Now, the only reason you, the, the, that a, and so, so Matthew addresses that. He says that story originates with the religious leaders. That's not what happened. Now, the only reason you would need to address that argument is that someone had to explain, no, you know, the tomb was empty. The argument was not, look, Jesus is right there. It was, oh, the tomb's empty, but why? They must have stolen the body. See, Peter says, you know it. That tomb is empty. Jesus is not there. We saw him alive. We know God raised him up. Go look if you don't believe me. And then there's the end of his sermon. Here's the conclusion. Here's the climax of his sermon. It's verse 36. He says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now go in peace. It's the end of his sermon. And then 3,000 people look at him and say, What do we do? What do we do? See, they're beginning, they're beginning to believe, but they, that's not enough. They say, Peter, what, we, we think you're right. What is our response? What do we do to grasp this message that you're proclaiming today? What do we do? And that's what, I, that's what I, we have to, and, and, you know, believing this intellectually, as important as that is, is not enough. 
we have to respond. And, and uh, uh, Acts 2 lays that out. So what do we have to do? What do we have to, how do we apply this? Okay, so the first thing, this is going to sound intense because it is. But the first thing we have to do is we have to be stabbed in the heart. Now, let me explain what I mean. Peter responds to the what do we do with repent and be baptized, but he doesn't say that until these people have been stabbed in the heart. That's the more literal translation of verse 37. Okay, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Did you see that? Verse 37. This word is literally like they were stabbed, they were impaled in the heart. See, before they could repent and be bad, before they could hear anything else, something had to happen on a very personal, visceral level. Something that felt a lot like getting stabbed or cut to receive the message of Christianity. It has to feel something like that. I I think the best way for me to describe that to you uh, is some kind of taking your sin personally. Taking it personally. Okay? Whatever word you want to use there, sin, disobedience, wrongdoing, whatever it is you want to put there until we realize what we've actually done personally is what it means to be stabbed in the heart. Okay? And here's the best way I could think to illustrate this. So when I was growing up, um, my older sister uh, went to a dance in high school and she came back late, which is, a very, is very common, I'm sure. Uh, but she, you know, she had a strict curfew and she was late. Um, and uh, I got her permission to share this, uh, so it's okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, so my parents, you know, the way they retell it is like we were up all night waiting. It was probably like an hour, but they were up all night waiting. And when she gets home, right, they, 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 they lay into her. So my mom goes first, and she says, you know, she, she was the enforcer. You know, everybody's got that parent. She, that's who my mom was. She says, you, you know, you had a curfew, you, you're late, what in the world are you doing, um, where were you, you know, she's just on and on and on and on, and my sister is just lying, you know, she's making up excuses that aren't true, essentially, you know, oh, oh yeah, I, I, I'm sorry, I just, I forgot, oh, I, I was doing, you know, just, sorry, it's, but it's fine, right, we're okay, um, now, she's a, a, she's a Christian counselor now, so she worked all that out, but she was lying. <laughs> uh, so then my, so my mom, you know, realized nothing's happening. So then my dad comes in, and he's already emotional, right? He's just been, he's just been listening. And as he begins to cry, he looks at her and says, I'm so disappointed in you. And at that my sister completely breaks down. She starts bawling her eyes out. I'm sorry, I lied. I, I, I just wanted to be out one more hour and I thought I could get away, you know, so suddenly everyone's crying. So many tears. Uh, I was asleep. I slept through the whole thing. I didn't care at all. But uh, that, I, <laughs> this is how they tell the story. So here, why do I say that? So Christianity is not saying sorry to God and then shrugging your shoulders and moving on. Peter himself uh, learned this lesson, you know, uh, when he betrayed Jesus, I alluded to that earlier, uh, he's in the courtyard where Jesus is on trial. This is in Luke's gospel. Uh, Peter's there. It's very crowded. There's lots of people. 
Peter's there, and a couple of people are, can hear Peter speaking, and they say, you're a Galilean, aren't you? Right? The accent, you could hear it. And they say, you were with him. We saw you with him. Peter says, no. Three times he says, no, I wasn't with him. I never knew him. I never, I never want to know him. Right? Just complete denial. He does that three times. Now, did, in the middle of Peter doing that, did he feel bad? I'm sure he did. I'm sure he felt guilty. At a minimum, he is breaking one of God's laws. He knows he is not supposed to lie. But somehow in the midst of this, Luke tells us this, somehow in the midst of this denial and the chaos and the people, Peter looks up and, he's, and, and Jesus has caught eyes with him from across the room. And when, Peter, when Jesus looks at Peter, he is broken. It's right, it's in Luke, I think it's chapter 22, Luke 22. You see, he's cut to the heart. And he runs out weeping bitterly. That's really the last thing you see him doing, full of guilt. But that moment started a process of real repentance in Peter's life, that moment. Okay, it's one thing to know that you've broken the rules. Everybody knows that. It's another to know that you've broken Jesus' heart. Are you beginning to understand? Does that make sense? In his sermon, Peter is, is making the case, you notice not simply that the Jewish leaders killed Jesus or Rome killed Jesus. He says, you did. You did. Now again, I don't think most of these people were physically there. They probably heard about it third hand. Peter doesn't care. He says, Your sin, you did it. Your sin did it, whether you were there or not. You did See, that, that, and until that knowledge cuts your heart, until you catch eyes with Jesus on the cross, and you feel the weight of what that means, you, this message, won't, it can't transform you. You've got to feel the weight of the statement, Jesus died for my sins. If that's an abstraction to you, that's just a statement. It can't penetrate your life. We, we won't get it without that. I'm not saying it has to be this emotional, you know, like my sister breaking down, but it has to cut us personally. The second thing, second thing we have to do, we have to receive the grace. Peter says, repent, be baptized. Why? For the forgiveness of your sins. That's verse 38. So when you're cut to the heart, you realize your sin, your disobedience killed Jesus. Not just sin, but your sin now the real power of the gospel, this message, can transform you. Because Peter learned, and his audience learned as he spoke, and what we're confronted with is, yes, Jesus died. That's not the end of the story. He died for us. This whole plan of God that Peter talks about from the beginning of time, it was about <clears throat> the forgiveness of sin. Jesus is the fulfillment of the entire Bible in this regard. It's all about grace. It's all about him. Every story, every lesson. Uh, what, 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 this is why Peter spent so much time talking about David and Joel and all this stuff. It's all about Jesus. He's saying every hero is a shadow of him. Every sacrifice is a foretaste of him. Every failure is an indicator that without Jesus, we will perish. But with him, but with him, we can receive grace. 
It's not about works. It's not about earning with God. It's not about what we bring. We kill, you know, Peter's emphatic, we killed God. We killed the Son of God. There's no recovering from that. There's no working your way back in. The only thing that can save you there is an act of incredible forgiveness and grace, which is what the gospel promises. It's why Jesus died. Peter says, receive the gift, and it will change you like it changed me. And by the way, um, there's more uh, to receiving grace than just forgiveness. Okay, Peter also says, be baptized. Um, You know, the way I read that, that means join the family of God. Enter the family of God, this new family. 3,000 people are added this day to join this new family God is creating. That's also a part of the grace. Receive the grace. Join his family. Okay, last thing, last thing that you see. When we've been cut to the heart, we receive the grace. The next thing that you see throughout this whole sermon, it's hinted at, you tell everybody. Tell everybody. Peter literally does that. He's telling everybody. (laughs) We're watching him do it. But look at what he says in verse 39. He says, For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Now, keep in mind, remember, Peter is saying here, he's saying this message, once you get it, it's for those far off. Now, he's speaking to Jews here. That phrase, far off, they would think Gentile. uh, The people we don't like. The Jews did not like Gentiles. They were, they were dirty, unclean, they were pagans. No. Peter's hinting here, and you'll see it throughout the whole book of Acts, that the gospel of Jesus deals with our prejudice and our pride and our fear. So when you believe Jesus is who he said he was, and, he cut, and you're cut to the heart and you receive the grace and you've become a Christian, you become a follower of him, the first thing we do, Peter says in that moment, is we begin to think about how do we share this with those who are far off? This promise that's now mine, how do I share it? I'm not talking about getting a megaphone and a street corner. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about winsomely and wisely sharing our message where God has given us influence. And we all have influence somewhere. I was, I was recently listening to a thoughtful uh, Christian uh, attender here at the Leewood campus in his workplace. He invited us in. Uh, He's in a very competitive corporate environment. And he was sharing about what it's like to be a believer there. And he he said this, this, the gist of it, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. He said, I'm always seeking to be strategic and specific when I share the gospel. This context isn't exactly always conducive to the values of the gospel where I'm at. I can't just go around sharing it all the time, but I'm looking for the open door, and when it's cracked, I take it. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I mean. Okay. Can we tell everyone, like Peter, when we get the message, can we ask for opportunity, for wisdom, for words to share this? Can we look at where the Holy Spirit is opening doors in our lives? Can we just pay attention to what God's doing? Can we share every, with, with everybody? Okay, last thought for the morning. Okay, some of you um, may be here, you've been here for a while, or you've been here a little while, or you've not been to church in a long time, and you're, you're thinking to yourself in this moment, I, I don't know if I get that message right now. Okay, maybe now is the time. 
to start praying to God for him to make that real to you. Maybe the first thing you should do is ask God, okay, God, this week speak to me. Through your word, through a, a friendship, a relationship, through time of prayer where I, I'm, I talk to you more, show me, make this real to me. And maybe have a conversation with someone here that you trust and keep coming and keep listening. Maybe that's your next step. For all of us, you know, 2,000 years ago, don't miss this, 2,000 years ago, this message, this simple message that dissertations have been written about and children can memorize, this, this message changed the world. Starting with a lying, betraying, cowardly, Galilean nobody. And God is ready to use this message to change the world again. And he is ready to use Christ's community to do that. So let's be a sent church this week. Let's pray to him now. Father, for those of us here who maybe don't know you or feel far from you and we don't know what to do next, God, I pray, help us, cut us to the heart. Help us to admit our sin, to believe in your son and with our whole lives to begin confessing him as Lord, Lord of all. And for those of us who... uh, who, who do know you and desire to follow you, give us the courage to share this even when we're uncomfortable. Help us to experience your power through the Spirit to speak words of life and to live in all things like Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.